A note to our listeners, please be advised that this podcast refers to child sexual abuse. What is your personal definition of clericalism? How do you know it when you see it? Whether they ask about your family, how your kids are doing, how your wife is, whether it's about us instead of me, them, whether they think we're better together than just with them in charge. Frankly, it's whether they look women in the eye, whether they're comfortable dealing with lay people as peers and friends. For me, clericalism is not about ideology or ecclesiology. It's about isolation. It's about thinking you know best. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. Last week, we learned about the structures in the church that could hold bishops accountable. This time, we're looking at the culture that enabled abuse and its cover-up, and that's clericalism. Pope Francis has named clericalism as the root cause of this crisis. And nearly every guest on this podcast has triple underlined it. Yeah, it's this attitude, we know better because we're the people who are at the head of this church, at the top of this church, and it's pure clericalism. And then the clergy themselves would circle the wagons to protect each other and protect the reputation of the clergy. It takes a culture of deference and a culture of over-respect for individuals to allow this to continue for as long as it happened. But what is clericalism exactly? Well, I think clericalism refers to a set of attitudes, practices, and structures that encourage the creation of a caste-like guild of professional ministers in the church whom we call clergy. This is Rick Alardi, our theologian from the last episode that is characterized by a sense of being exempt from external criticism and accountability, tends to believe that they merit uncritical deference on the part of the laity, and are prone to exercise dominating power. This is a great definition of clericalism. But would you recognize it if you saw it? In the very first episode, I shared the story of how my parish priest, Father Mike, confessed to abusing a minor. I want to go back to that story, but this time from the perspective of a mother in the pews that day. My mother. Father Mike had not served the Mass that I had attended, but he came and spoke to the parishioners, to the congregation, which wasn't unusual. I really went blank on a lot of what he said, because I remember when the words that just hit me like somebody just kicked me in the stomach, and he said, um, 14 years ago, I transgressed the boundaries of a young boy. And I, I honestly remember thinking, what? What are you talking about? 
to be real. This, this has to be like somebody else is talking up here now. Like, who are you? You are not the man that we have all thought you were. I mean, this isn't the man that gathered us in that school multi-purpose room for the first time, the hundred or so of us. You, this isn't the same man that pulled us all together and built this parish to now be, you know, thousands of families that come here and celebrate every day. This isn't the same person. My mom wasn't the only one blindsided by Father Mike's revelation. The whole community was in shock. And it took some time for everyone to reconcile what happened with the Father Mike that they knew. As far as we know, no allegations were made against Father Mike while he was at our parish. He abused a minor in a different community 14 years earlier. But I can't help but wonder, if it had happened at my church, would anyone have noticed? Or would we have given him total deference? I don't think there's a way to know. But it's one thing not to see abuse, and another to see abuse and look the other way. And what I know for sure is, if Father Mike had touched me or my brother, Mary Van Dorn would have done something. As a parent, if you had done that to one of my children, I don't know how you could hold me back. But when the bishops heard these stories, they reacted quite differently. When I first came to grips with this in an institutional way, I worked for Cardinal Hickey in Washington. This is John Carr. He's the director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. And for over 25 years, John's worked with the U.S. bishops. And I was pulled into a meeting where a priest, senior cleric, had abused young men. And uh, it was me and five clerics. And for them, this couldn't be possible. They knew him. This was some terrible misunderstanding. And I said, I don't know, Monsignor, but I know that short of murder, this is the worst thing that can happen to a child and a parent. And my experience was there were not enough parents in the room, not enough moms and dads, certainly now not enough survivors. Not enough moms, not enough dads. Or, put more broadly, there weren't enough lay people in the rooms where decisions were made. And that's the problem with clericalism. It sidelines non-ordained voices and concentrates power in priests and bishops, who, in the Catholic Church, are always men. Which then raises the question, what does gender have to do with this? So I think gender is really important and maybe underanalyzed. This is Julie Rubio, a professor at the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University. Julie's been writing a lot lately on sexual violence and clergy sexual abuse. One of the things that really stands out for anybody looking at sexual violence is that men are the vast majority of perpetrators. So that's true in the church, but that's true in society generally. So we kind of have to ask, why? Why is it that men become perpetrators of violence? And what maybe do problematic conceptions of masculinity, like, say, toxic masculinity, have to do with sexual violence inside the church, outside the church? Priests are raised in the same culture as other men. So it makes sense that they could absorb some problematic ways of thinking. 
toxic masculinity isn't unique to the Catholic Church. But when your clergy is all male, you've taken a broader sociological tendency and you've concentrated it in a group with power. In other words, it's not surprising that an all-male group is more likely to perform masculinity in unhealthy ways. But if you've ever been anywhere near a Catholic church, you know that ordained men aren't the only ones toiling away in the vineyard of the Lord. Not by a long shot. Over 80% of the ministerial roles in the church in the U.S. church today are already held by women. So women are already the majority. There are plenty of people who have proposed that ordaining women is a solution to the problems of clericalism. That argument usually goes like this. Perpetrators of sexual violence are overwhelmingly male, and a patriarchal culture that prioritizes the interests of men is more likely to tolerate abuse. So the logic follows that ordaining women should chip away at the problem. But there are two complications to this line of thinking. First, there's little chance that women's ordination will be a possibility anytime soon because the last three popes have argued that this teaching is unchangeable. The second is that focusing on women's ordination assumes that only ordained people can exercise power or change the culture, which is again, clericalism. So what if instead of focusing on women's ordination, we ask, how else can we shift power in the church? I think maybe what we need to consider is who has the actual authority. So for instance, a parish council model, is it an advisory council where women do a lot of the heavy lifting, but ultimately father makes the decisions? Are there ways in which power can be more shared? Or in areas where priests aren't available to be pastors, which are growing in some parts of the U.S., can women or laymen and women be in charge of the parish, be the administrators of the parish, while priests still fill certain liturgical and other roles? So women are already exercising leadership, and we should think about how to expand those roles. But as Julie reads it, this crisis is less about sex and gender and more about power. I wonder, have we begun to really look at the kinds of sexual actions that are revealed in reports like the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report as sexual actions? I mean, we look at them and we're appropriately horrified. But then I think the kinds of questions I want to ask is why these kinds of sexual acts and what kind of sexual acts are they? I think that's the insight that I want to pick up from feminist theory in relation to sexual violence, that these are crimes of power, not primarily crimes of sex, and that the vast majority of perpetrators have sexual partners, are even sexually active. They're not doing this because they can't get sex elsewhere. There's a power dynamic that is happening, and that is what is spurring a lot of this. There's a quote attributed to the 19th century poet Oscar Wilde. Everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. So this isn't a new theory. And Julie's analysis is backed up by the scientific studies we talked about in episode two. When we pin the problem on celibacy or sexual orientation, we are making the same assumption, namely, that sexual abuse is about sex or desire, when in fact, these should be understood as crimes of power. 
And that brings us back to the clergy who never actually committed sexual abuse, but still covered it up, looked the other way, or weren't thorough in their investigations. We're talking about the systems that encourage bishops to prioritize the clergy and the church's reputation over the suffering of children. These are also crimes of power. So how does someone wind up betraying the very community he vowed to serve? What I found is a lot of bishops are isolated. They live in a world without a lot of connections. And they're surrounded by people who reinforce their own thinking. This is John Carr again. When I worked for Cardinal Law, as I said, was the height of the Boston crisis. Uh, I was the father of teenage boys, and it just, in some ways, was breaking me. And I shared some of that, and Cardinal Law said to me, no one talks to me the way you do. Hmm. What do you think he meant by that? Well, it wasn't a compliment. I was very respectful. This is my life. I'm an institutional person. But I told him if no one talks to him the way I was talking to him, that was a problem. How did you arrive at a place where you could challenge your boss, who happened to be a bishop? Well, I mean, none of us did enough. I want to be really clear. It is really hard to say, you know what, I think we're making a big mistake here. Or, you know what, people have a right to be mad. It's not easy in the middle of a structure where someone has authority that ultimately comes from God and apostolic succession to say, you're right about a lot of things, but you're not right about this. John threw an important phrase in there. You can't talk about the structures of power in the Catholic Church without mentioning apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is the belief that every bishop is linked back to the original band of apostles that Jesus chose to build his church. That's 2,000 years of history, which means there's a much longer story here. And that story, well, that's Rick's specialty. You know, if we go back even to the New Testament, we can recognize the early Christian community, you know, had to have some loose structures of authority. And we see it in the New Testament, but we also see in the New Testament there were a lot of different models. It's important we don't project back onto bishops in the early church our model today. Your average bishop in 150 probably looked a lot more like the pastor of a small parish. That is, it was one Eucharistic community that gathered in one place. So it wasn't like the Archdiocese of Boston with 250 parishes or something like that. Now, what's significant about this is that the bishop was very closely bound to his local church. He was largely chosen by his local church. Bishops meet regularly with other bishops in a region to talk about... Bishops are meant to follow in the example of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Even the language of pastor and pastoral evokes the image of a gentle guardian roaming the hillsides, minding the littlest ones and the strays. It's my earliest and favorite image of God, actually. So when Rick says that a bishop's authority was bound to his local church, it's like saying, who is a shepherd without his sheep? And in this case, the opinions of sheep matter. So for example, even as late as the fifth century, Pope Celestine I would declare, and I quote, 
let a bishop not be imposed upon the people whom they do not want, unquote. So what's clear there was how important it was that the bishop was related to the local church. Now, another way in which that was reinforced is there are a number of ancient canons that prohibited what was then called the translation of a bishop, the transfer of a bishop from one diocese to another. It happened, but it was very rare, and it was frowned upon because the idea was that the bishop was married to the church that called him forth. He was to commit himself to their care and service. And so the idea of a bishop going from church to church was a kind of ecclesiastical divorce. If you've ever tracked the career of a bishop, you've seen that the opposite is true today. More often than not, your bishop isn't exactly a local, especially if you're living in a large diocese connected to a powerful city. In places like that, your bishop probably started out in a smaller diocese and worked his way up. And this practice has some serious downsides. The early church recognized that allowing bishops to move from church to church simply encouraged ambition and careerism. And so I think this is part of what we're seeing today. We have a situation where the local church has almost no say in the appointment of its bishop. We have a situation where bishops are encouraged to look over their shoulder to make sure what they do finds approval from higher authority so that they can get promoted to a more prestigious appointment. And you have a dramatically weakened sense of the bishop's commitment to his flock. So one of the best antidotes to clericalism, I believe, is to reinforce the ancient conviction that a bishop must be bound to a ministry of service to his people. Make sure every bishop is connected to his diocese seem simple enough. So we have this perverse situation today, Maggie. I don't know if you're aware of this. Okay, maybe not. We're almost 40% of our bishops have what we call titular sees. That is, if they're a diplomat or they work in the Vatican or they're an auxiliary bishop, we still give them a local church, but it's a non-existent church. So 40% of our bishops are, in fact, bishops of churches with no people in them. So what we need to do is reform the Code of Canon Law to get back to the situation where ordination to the Episcopate's not a promotion with new titles and clerical garb that sets you apart from others and the privilege of being addressed as your excellency or your eminence or something like that. We need to change the Code of Canon Law to recover our church's ancient conviction. In other words, we need to be much more traditional in our understanding of the role of the bishop. So why do we treat becoming bishop like a promotion? And why do we have so many bishops running the church's bureaucracy instead of ministering to people in dioceses? If you examine this mindset, I think you'll come back to the dynamic we pointed out earlier. It's about power. And when we concentrate power in the clerics, we clear the path for clericalism. So our task is to find a way to change this mindset. To do that, we should start well before someone becomes a bishop, perhaps even before they become a priest. In general, I think one of our problems is we become accustomed in the Catholic Church to thinking of vocation in very privatized terms. So, you know, 
somebody might ask you, Maggie, do you think you have a vocation to religious life or a vocation to the priesthood or so on? But we tend to think of that as my vocation, right? And so the way our system is often set up, an individual person, right now it's only males in the Catholic Church, you know, says that they think they have a vocation to the priesthood. Well, that's their decision, right, in a way. And we think that's their right. I have a call. I'm called to be a priest. And we tend not to emphasize the discernment of the community in whether there's a vocation to serve the church, right? And so consequently, when we call forth candidates to the priesthood, sometimes I think we're more bent on discerning impediments. Is there an obstacle to this person being ordained? When what we should be doing is, do I see a genuine charism for pastoral leadership? So who decides if a person would make a good priest? Maybe the parish you grew up in or your college campus ministry. But another really critical space is seminary. After all, this is the community that will determine whether or not someone has the right qualities for priesthood and what kind of priest they'll ultimately become. Unfortunately, our diocesan seminary system has become dangerously ghettoized. There has been a discouragement, for example, of having lay male and female formators or spiritual directors or even faculty teaching their courses. There was a discouragement against seminarians taking theology courses side by side with lay people. Well, I just think that's tremendously unhealthy. How can you form somebody to serve the people of God when you systematically separate them from the very people they're supposed to serve? John pointed out how dangerous the isolation of bishops was in 2002. But for many clergy, that isolation started much further back, and it's still happening in far too many seminaries throughout the U.S., Julie is also worried about this. If clericalism is a kind of bias that privileges and sets apart and above those who are priests, it seems that a formation which is isolated and apart from would foster that rather than work against it, no matter how many times you said we're forming you for servant leadership or something like that. I don't think most people know exactly how seminary looks or um, how a curriculum is devised. Is there a common curriculum for priestly formation in the United States or around the world? There's a Vatican document that was written by the Congregation for the Clergy, and it was updated last in 2016. And that sets out a vision and norms for seminary education. And then each country has to devise their own formation document, and then each seminary has its own. So it's all meant to be in keeping with this Vatican vision. Okay, so there's a common vision for seminaries throughout the world, but lots of liberty when it comes to designing a curriculum and environment. I asked Julie how her seminary, the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara, has been rethinking their curriculum in light of the sexual abuse crisis. One of the most important things I think we're doing is we're trying to look at ourselves and we're using the Jesuit idea of the examine to look at ourselves and ask ourselves in what ways might we be complicit with clericalism and in what ways are we combating clericalism? 
And we've wanted to ask that question with faculty, staff, and students, and encourage each other to be as honest as we possibly can. What has been your methodology for conducting this self-examination? We've had some open listening sessions. We've distributed some written surveys. And then we're also doing one-on-one interviews. And what are ways that you are effectively challenging clericalism? I think the fact that we have a diverse cohort in our MDiv program, which is the program that prepares priests as well as lay people for ministry, is important. I think lay people who are preparing for ministry are getting unique insights about what it is to be a priest and to be celibate. And conversely, those training to be priests who are already active in ministry are hearing from the ground about what family life is like. And so over the course of the term, I hear priests who came into the course with easier answers, perhaps, to some of the dilemmas that lay people face, seeing the complexity of that and seeing that maybe doing ministry is going to require more knowledge of people's lives than they thought. So they're learning from each other and recognizing each other's struggles in their diversity, but also seeing the commonalities that they share. That's wonderful. Um, So where have you not gotten beyond clericalism? One thing that happened early this year is that we have a course called Theology of the Priesthood. And traditionally, it has been restricted to men. But some of our women students asked this year if they could take the class. And first they were told, well, you can't. And then they asked, why? And then our administrators said, we're not sure. And they went and tried to find documents, and they talked to other people in other schools, and they said, it seems to be it just evolved that way. And the women said, well, since we're going to spend a lot of our careers in ministry working alongside priests, we'd like to take this course. And so we said, that makes sense to us, and they're in the class now. And that was just a simple thing, but it was the kind of thing that these unexamined assumptions, I mean, clericalism is a bias. It's like racism, right? So we're just continually figuring out where is it and and how could we challenge it more effectively? I think this is a really interesting kind of self-examination, but we're talking about one seminary in Northern California. There are almost 200 seminaries in the U.S., each with their own curriculum, How then does a theologian like Julie share the insights from her seminarians? Well, she brings them to the Catholic Theological Society of America, of course. I organized a panel with people from more conservative seminaries and more liberal seminaries, all talking about the crisis. And these are people who would really not be in the same room together normally. But they are going to be, because I invited them. And, uh, And I can't wait to hear what that conversation sounds like. People like Julie are working to make a positive impact in priestly formation. But most of us aren't theology professors. Most of us don't even live near a seminary. But we do live near churches, and we probably interact with our local priest, or maybe even our bishop. So I turn to Rick again to ask, what can the average Catholic do to address clericalism? You know, there's a searing line in the movie Spotlight about the Boston Globe investigation. This city, these people. It's put on the lips of Mitch Garabedian, who was one of the lawyers who defended many of the victims of abuse. 
He said, Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. And what was powerful about that film is that's what it showed. It did not just demonize cardinal law or the priest predators. It also showed how journalists were culpable in looking the other way, how the law enforcement was culpable for looking the other way, how prominent lay Catholics were culpable for looking the other way. Many of us have to be complicit or are complicit in perpetuating a clerical culture. A priest can ask for uncritical deference, but for the culture to be sustained, we the laity have to give it to him. And a lot of us, in fact, do that. This is true. It's harder for clerics to abuse power if we don't grant them that total obedience. But I want to be really careful here. Being complicit in a culture of clericalism is not the same as being a cleric who's abused his power. And the last thing we want to do is blame the laity for this crisis. Because, for starters, lay people have been among the gravely wounded. They've been the victims of abuse. And many of us have been traumatized by the abuse that's taken place in our spiritual home. And yet, if we want to be part of the solution, we got to be brave enough to see how we've contributed to the problem. So I asked Rick to help me see what I've been missing. Is there any way that we as a laity can become more aware of where we might be complicit in the reinforcement of clericalism? What we're talking about here is nothing less than an ecclesial conversion. Too many Catholics still enter into the liturgical life of the church in a relatively passive and almost consumerist way in which we think we go to Mass to get something. Now, what we get varies. For some, it's the Eucharist. For others, it's good preaching or uh, rousing music. But we, we tend to approach the liturgy according to the logic of consumerism and commodification. So what we need is a liturgical catechesis that reminds us that we come to the liturgy as active disciples called to affirm one another's baptismal call. So when we begin to think of the liturgy that way, we move from a passive model of consumer where we're more inclined to grant to Father his special privilege to recognizing our shared responsibility for the mission of the church, always under the leadership of the pastor. Sharing responsibility. And not just sharing big executive decisions like buildings and programming, but sharing in the daily life of the community. That would be a dramatic shift for people in the pews. You don't show up to get something. You show up to share who you are and to receive what others in the community are offering. Although, John has an important caveat here. Having said that I want lay people involved, I worry that we'll replace a clerical elite by a lay elite. When you concentrate power, it is almost always abuse. And so we have to find a way not only to share power, but to share responsibility. One of the words we need to recover in the Catholic Church is this notion of co-responsibility. 
that we're in this together. If it takes a village to create a culture of clericalism, it will also take a village to dismantle it. So for the next and final episode of Deliver Us, we'll look at the people doing just that, sharing responsibility and changing the church from the inside. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. This episode was written by me and Eric Sundrup. All of our episodes are recorded in the William J. Lowshirt studio. And Deliver Us is made possible by generous support from listeners like you. You can donate and support this podcast and other works by visiting americamag.org donate. Thanks for listening. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.